You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. We've spoken to Paddy Dillon a couple of times on the book show, both about his um, guidebooks to walking in Ireland and his book on the GR20. Now, every time we speak to Paddy, we've had to do that over a crackly telephone line, which is far from perfect. So I've taken the opportunity of uh, dragging him away from the hustle and bustle of the outdoor show to, 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 to have a more considered conversation with him one-to-one. Paddy, welcome. Thank you. Now, um, people are fascinated, we find, about how authors get into this business of long-distance walking and writing. So how did this passion with walking start with you? Well, I suppose I lived on the edge of a Lancashire mill town, and I had two choices. I could either go into town or out of town from my very doorstep, and often enough I would be going out of town. There would be a little patch of rough ground, and beyond that the Pennines, and it was as simple as that. If I wanted to walk and keep walking... I had no idea how far those Pennines went or where I would end up. So later on, um, during my school years, when I came across the old one-inch Ordnance Survey maps, that was an eye-opener because all of a sudden I saw my town in relation to at least part of the Pennines, and I knew that if I kept following this road or that track, I would eventually end up across seeing Yorkshire. Um, so once I had that key to the outdoors, th- there was no stopping me. I think I discovered Ordnance Survey maps when I was about uh, 14 or 15. By the time I was 16, I put on a pack and in my school holidays started walking and didn't come back for four weeks. So that was the, f- the first walk, and, and that was uh, a walk through the Pennines, was it? It was, yes. I set off from my doorstep, and within six miles I was on the Pennine Way. At that, ch- at that time I could have gone north or south. I chose to go northwards, and then by the time I got into the North Pennines, around uh, the Crossfell area, I decided to walk across the Vale of Eden, pitch my tent um, on a static site, if you like, rather than moving from place to place, pitch my tent on one site in the Lake District and do a whole series of day walks, and then after a week or so of that, headed back through the Yorkshire Dales and back home. And I have to say, I wasn't terribly experienced. It was my first long-distance walk, um, so I had all the wrong gear, the wrong footwear, the wrong clothing, I had the wrong rucksack and all the wrong stuff in the rucksack, but... I got through, and ever since that day, to this very day, I've been trying to get the perfect kit together. We'll we'll talk about kit a little bit later, because uh, everybody likes to talk about kit. So that that walk, was that when the bug first really hit you? Because I think earlier you said to me you'd only done a proper job for a very short time. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was me in my school days. I'd already sort of decided long-distance walking was the thing. I mean, I don't know why long-distance walking especially. I, I was always interested in what was over the next hill, what was in the next town or village, you know. And, and long-distance walking to me just seemed to be the key to it all. If you walk long-distance, you could do all those things. And sure, people would say, well, sure, you, you could have got a, a motorbike and done it. But... I just wanted to be away from roads. I wanted to be in the countryside. And um, certainly the long-distance walking appealed over any other method of travel. Um, so that, that really was it. And, and I was obviously thinking in those terms before I was 16, but it was when I was 16 I actually went and did it. And uh, the connection between the guidebooks and the writing, I mean, do you produce the guidebooks in order to be able to walk or...? Do you uh, is, 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 is walking the primary purpose to write the guidebooks? 
I think I, if I had, you know, no job whatsoever, no way of earning any income, I'd still be out there walking. Um, but it is just fortuitous that you can actually earn a living from it. It's not always easy, um, and for a lot of people it wouldn't be at all practical, but it suits me fine. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's all that matters. From my perspective, is that it suits me. I don't mind walking in all weathers, because I'd like it when it's nice all the time. It's not always nice, but you put up with the bad days, because the good days completely eclipse the bad days anyway. Um, so I put up with the bad days. I put up with the, you know, the, the hassle of having to organise information while I'm on the move, um, because I know at the end of the day, I'll be able to get that into print, get it published, earn my money to be able to do the next walk and that just keeps me ticking over nicely it suits me fine but like I say it wouldn't suit everyone at all Now um, along with Kev Fennels you're undoubtedly one of the most prolific guidebook writers in the UK how many have you written to date? Um, I think well uh, certainly 40 guidebooks but of course there are always one or two which are in the throes of publication so at the moment I have like an enormous great tome dealing with the national trails which is in the process of publication um, I'm just about to start work on an update to a guidebook to County Durham so if you count things like that in in the uh, equation then there's certainly 40 guidebooks there but I, I really don't know exactly how many I've done it's about that so take a year an average year if there is such a thing I mean how how much time of that year are you actually out walking on hills and mountains I'd say easily six months, easily, but m normally it's, it's going to be a little bit more than that. Um, but six months, absolute minimum. Um, seven months, certainly most years I'll be out seven months, but even when I'm at home, I'm, I'm doing day walks as well. So if friends come round and say, we're going up the lakes, do you want to come? Fine, you know, I just throw some gear in the pack and we go out for a day walk. And um, so it, it's more than half the year that I'm actually out and about, and the rest of the time I'm you know, basically shuffling the paperwork. Um, you know, at some point I've got to be at home to pick up the post and check the, the uh, uh, phone messages and things like that, to pay the bills and put money in and out the bank. Um, but the rest of the time, that's completely behind me, and I'm just out walking. And um, you walk throughout the year, don't you? You um, often walk here or in northern Europe during the summer, and then as it gets a bit cooler, you head off to warmer, more exotic climates. That's right. I, I used to be quite happy with a British summer and a British winter, but the winters now are not what they used to be. I, I don't know if it's hazy memories or what, but winters should be crisp, clear, snow-covered um, landscapes, and they're not always. Sometimes it's dull, grey, dreary, and it does get to you after a while. And these days, with travel being so easy and so cheap, uh, the temptation is always there to just clear off to somewhere where the sunshine is almost guaranteed and you know you can do a good long walk and you've got long days in which to do it um, and then you come back home to the dreary greyness, do a couple of walks in the lakes and say, you know, I think another trip abroad would suit me just fine. It's cheap, it's easy to do these days and um, that's a great incentive given that there are so many opportunities um, in nearby sunny places to do that. You know, I, I think maybe more people should grab those opportunities. Now it strikes me that um, you've got to be pretty organised to keep all these balls juggling in the air and you've certainly got a very organised 
um, approach to actually producing the guidebooks themselves, haven't you? Yeah, I used to take notes, um, you know, pen and paper, pencil and paper, and then rewrite and write again, and then on the old manual typewriter, hammer all those letters onto the page. That was the way it used to be done, and then, of course, now everything is computerised. You've got to move with the times. I was reluctant to have anything to do with computers because, to me, a computer sat on your desk at home, which meant you had to be at home using it. And I said I couldn't be bothered with computers until somebody invented one I could take up the hill with me. And lo and behold, eventually someone invented one I could take up the hill with me and there was no turning back. So my first computer went in my pocket and the only reason I got a desktop was to link that to it when I got home. So now, yes, everything is computerised, and it does mean I think I get twice as much time on the hill because I'm not writing and rewriting stuff in note form as much. It's all actually being written directly in digital format on, at the point where I'm actually using the, the, the map. But it does mean that if we buy a paddy book, um, we know that you know, when we come to that junction, if you take you know, the, the, the left-hand fork... We know that you've actually stood there at that spot and actually put that directly into your little mini pocket computer at that point. That's right. Um, if I say at the junction turn left, I wrote turn left at that junction. All I will do after that is maybe in the evening do some fairly basic editing on the route description and then the other thing I will do, which takes maybe a bit more time in the evening, is if there's any incidental information, say history, heritage, wildlife, that needs fleshing out, I might sit down and spend an hour or two actually you know, doing two or three hundred word pieces which are slotted in between all the route descriptions. But the route description itself is basically written on the hoof. Um, and it's, you're reading it at the point where I wrote it. Yeah, which um, certainly gives them a, a very comprehensive flavour. And one of the other things that I like about your guidebooks is there's a lot of other information in them as well. There's um, always lots of information about accommodation, variants that you can take, places you can drop down into. And how do you collect that information as you go along? I mean, without giving away too many trade secrets, obviously. <laughs> do you end up with a rucksack full of brochures and um, all kinds of other promotional material? Yes, I can end up with that. Um, but these days, uh, you know, I mean, I used to collect brochures like crazy and file them all the way at home and I could refer back to them. But a lot of, say, tourist-type brochures, brochures dealing with attractions like the big castle on the hill or the Heritage Museum, they do go out of date very quickly. Um, so, again, when I'm on the move, I will take note of telephone numbers, names, addresses, and I can incorporate them into my text as I go along. And certainly when I do my editing in the evening, I can make sure that's all you know, done and dusted, tidied up, and the information is there in a logical order. Um, these days, of course, I can also now give people website addresses. So even if my details go out of date, say a telephone number or something like that, which change so often, People can check the website and they will be more up to date. So, you know, now, now I can give people extra information that they can follow up in the comfort of their own homes. Um, but, yes, sometimes you do end up collecting an awful lot of booklets and brochures. Um, but I tend to uh, get into a habit now of collecting these while I'm on the move abstracting the names, addresses and telephone numbers that are you know, pertinent to what I'm working on and then 
popping those in a recycled bin and not carry them over the next hill. So, um, you know, it's a case of trying to keep on top of information. And these days, there's so much information knocking around that you really do have to keep on top of it. So, by the time you've finished the walk itself, you've, you've virtually written a big chunk of the book, haven't you? That's right. I think the last thing I would ever write with a guidebook is the introduction. Um, and most people assume as that's starting on page one, that was written first. I tend to find that I'm writing the route description day after day after day as I'm walking the route. I'm filling in all the things about history, heritage, you know, whatever other features, slotting in information about public transport as and when I come across the details. Um, so when I get home, the bulk of the book is written. The only thing outstanding is the introduction. Now, even at that point, I will keep one text file running continually where I just add little notes as I go along. That will have the guts of the introduction in it. So when I get home, um, by the time I've sorted out the pictures and, and got the mapping sorted, the introduction will sort of crystallise in my own mind. But there are standard headings that you expect to see in a guidebook anywhere. You expect to see something about how to get there, how to get around the area, where to stay, tourist information contacts. So I can set up a file with those headings and then actually add the details as I go along. And if any heading looks suspiciously blank, like I haven't put anything in the public transport heading, I know there's a job still to be done there. And until that job is done, the introduction isn't finished. But, yeah, the introduction comes last. So you've got this down to a fine art, this book production, almost like a kind of prediction line technique, which I guess is important because... Um, Presumably there's quite a long time gap between you actually walking and writing the guide and it being published in the shops. Yeah, that varies from publisher to publisher. I think, you know, the most outlandish sort of uh, example I could think of is three years between me walking a route and the publisher finally grinding the wheels to, to churn out the, the book. Um, I don't think that's too good. I, I would prefer my publishers to be able to get something out within a year easily or say six to nine months is possible. Three months is possible but it does mean an awful lot of people these days have to be pulling in the same direction but six to nine months is about sort of you know a good standard for people to aim for in, in the actual publishing field. I can do my job very quickly, but if the publisher drags their feet, that's no use to the reader at the end of the day because things will go out of date the moment I turn my back, not a week later, but the moment I turn my back, things can go out of date and I physically can't spot that happening because I've already been seen and left the area. And uh, from the moment the book goes on sale, there's presumably quite another gap between the royalty checks starting to flow as well. That's right. I, um, I think most writers will be very, very lucky if they get something within six months of the book actually appearing. They should get something within 12 months, and that will usually be the largest check because there will have been some advance promotion for the book. Um, it will be a new book, so people will order it with, with a venom. Um, so the first block of sales should be the biggest, and then after that you'd expect a gradual trailing off and then there will come a point when that initial print run is sold out and at that point the publisher is going to turn around and either say well it was a bit sluggish let's let it lie or it did well we're going to reprint it at that point it's in everybody's interest that 
the whole work is updated. Now that can, in an extreme example, mean rewalking every single route, um, but it can be done maybe with people chipping in update information and you incorporate that into a new edition, but it would be absolutely willful these days um, in a changing world to let something be reprinted without changes. Yes, but controversially, some people do, don't they? I mean, I'm certainly Cicerone don't. Um, Cicerone's um, uh, um, reviews are, are very thorough. But I, you like me, must have picked up guidebooks and done a walk and you think, this, this guy has not actually walked this route. I've suspected that with some people over the years myself. I, I seldom use guidebooks, but sometimes I, I will flick through them. If it's an area I've never been and may be interested in visiting, I may grab a guidebook. I'm more likely to work from a map than anything else. And even with mapping, I'll try and get hold of the most up-to-date map I can of an area. If I buy a guidebook, I expect the same thing. I expect it to be up to date. Um, if it's not, you can usually spot within a few minutes, um, you know, if telephone codes look suspiciously old-fashioned and, um, you know, some of the uh, information refers to companies and businesses that no longer exist, you begin to get that sinking feeling and you wonder how much information in there is reliable. But if you actually start walking a route and they say, oh, no problem here, and you're doing something like Olympic hurdles to get over barbed wire fences, you begin to wonder, has that person actually been here at all? And there are some instances, some authors, some guidebooks, where I just wonder, did they even come you know, within sight of the route, or did they just come up with this information some other way? I've certainly had that experience. In fact, we were talking earlier this year, I was, I was talking to you about a day's walk I had in Ireland, I shall keep the location quiet, where um, I ended up on a very, very sheer um, drop, which the guidebook writer said, oh, this shouldn't cause any problems. And I think it's probably the most exposed I've ever been on a, on a walk. And I was certainly swearing <laughs> profusely as I got to the top of this. And, and you knew not only the, the, the guidebook I got it from, but you knew where they'd pinched it from <laughs> in the first place. That's right. It's, it's one of these things that, you know... If somebody copies from someone else, either they have even the remotest notion that person hasn't made it up in a complete moment of fantasy in the first place, you just don't know. And the only way to get round that is to actually get out there, do the thing yourself, write it up in your words, not anyone else's words. Um, and, and again, to my mind, any other approach is, is just sheer willfulness. You know, you're dealing with... A public readership, you, you're responsible to them, you know, they're, they're relying on your word to get them through. So it must be your word and not someone else's word ripped off from someone else's book, you know. It, it, it's all about professionalism, I suppose, and, and you just, there is no excuse for sloppiness in research these days, especially when people can turn around and, and come down on you like a ton of bricks in every possible media. It's just not worth the hassle, you know, to my mind. Do the job properly and, and then stand by it and say, I did that myself. Yeah, I often think when you look at the non-walk bits in books and you look at the comprehensive information that's there, as you hinted earlier, that gives you a clue as to as to whether somebody's really done their job properly. But uh, certainly it's uh, you could never accuse um, your guides of being anything other than very, very comprehensive. Now, from time to time people contact us and they say, well, you know, I'd love to get into guidebook writing and walking. Um, I mean, is there any advice to have 
for anyone seriously thinking of trying to break into this or eventually aim at creating a career for themselves like, like you've done? Anybody can write anything and they will eventually find a publisher willing to use that. If you think of things like newspapers and magazines, you see them absolutely chock-a-block full of words and pictures, but the plain honest truth is if you take a monthly magazine, if you were in the editor's hot seat and you were looking three months ahead, most of that magazine is blank pages. The work hasn't come in yet, the pictures aren't there yet. He's relying on his regular contributors sending things in, but he's also relying on people totally unknown people to send something completely fresh in as well. That goes for newspapers, it goes for magazines. With guidebook publishers, they're usually, or should be, open to anyone coming up with an idea for walks in an area, especially an area that is not on their list yet. Um, so the openings are there. Now, whether somebody can physically manage it in a way that they could make a career out of is a completely different matter because most people are happy to work Monday to Friday, 9 till 5, pick up that wage packet on a Friday, count the folding cash inside and go off to the pub. doesn't work like that when you're writing, not just outdoor writing, but any writing. You write something and there's a huge great gulf between you having written and you being paid. Um, nobody is on a 9 till 5 thing outside of an editor's office. Um, the, the freelancers say if they're working on a guidebook, they can put in a month's work solid of walking and paying their own expenses to produce a guidebook. And then the publisher will take maybe 9 months, 12 months, a year, two years to produce that guidebook and then sell it for 6 or 12 months before they return your first royalty check. So in other words, you could write the route and you could be paid in two years' time and that's only an instalment payment. Um, most people would say, I couldn't be bothered with that. I want my wage packet on a Friday. It just isn't going to come on a Friday. It's going to come some years hence. But what I reckon is if you pile in the guidebooks as I've done, then those royalties chip in every six months and it becomes big welcome checks every six months and out of that I will finance my ongoing guidebooks and research and it works fine for me but like I say it wouldn't work fine for everyone else you just need to get into a frame of mind where you say I've done my work I will be paid eventually and when I am paid the money it'll be very welcome so um, certainly if you're thinking of starting out pick an area look to magazines journals that kind of thing get get the feel of it right and, uh, and, and and just try and be as prolific as you can be but it's going to take a few years even if you've really got the knack to, to build it up to anything yeah. now um, this year you're embarking on a new big project aren't you which is the uh, GR5 which runs through the Alps now that's an interesting timetable in terms of production it is indeed I've already got the deadline I need to work towards it um, the deadline is crucial because the book must be produced in time for people walking the route the following season so I can't go beyond the deadline so my walking my research must precede that deadline I have to deliver to a deadline the end of September which means I really need to be finished walking by mid-September which means I need to be starting walking um, given that I have to take 10 weeks over this somewhere around the uh, end of June beginning of July now my plan is to start as soon as possible but I am going to be hampered by waiting until the high passes are clear of snow 
Um, but my plan is to walk the GR5 from north to south and then from south to north and to check every variant, every alternative, every conceivable approach to that route. I need to check transport to and from various stages. I need to check places that have accommodation, shops, inns, um, you know, all the refuges. I need to make sure they're all in place and they're fully operational. Places, say, on a dry stretch where people can get water, I need to be aware of that. If I walk the route twice, I'm going to have two opportunities of spotting all that. And um, certainly as I take the notes as I'm going along, when I return on, on my return journey, if anything's not quite right, I can tidy that up on the return. Um, but yeah, 10 weeks of actual walking um, to, to actually hit the deadline so that the publisher has a chance of getting this out in time for people to do it the next season. Most people, when faced with a route through the Alps that you know, takes four or five weeks to cover anyway, um, would maybe attack it over two or three separate summer trips. Now that means by the time it's fully written up, parts of it are going to be three years old. By the time it's published, parts of that could actually be four years old. In other words, it's going to be out of date in certain respects. My plan is just to have it as up-to-date as it's humanly possible to be. So if I walk it one season and it comes out for the next season, that is as up-to-date as anyone can hope to be um, in this particular field. But I'm going to enjoy it immensely, I'm sure. Well, it's a fine walk, and um, I look forward to that, and maybe even... Maybe there's a project to, to to look at for next summer. Now, um, you're also uh, partly in uh, readiness for this trip, renewing all of your kit, aren't you? And I know that uh, all the people listening to this are fascinated by kit, but you told me that um, you're really making an effort to get your weight down, in t- not personal weight, <laughs> in terms of your kit weight down, quite dramatically. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm taking the view at this point that if I'm going to be carrying a pack for 10 weeks, there's no point carrying excess weight for 10 weeks. So if, if it's costing me, say in an extreme case, £3 per gram to buy a piece of lightweight kit, um, I just say, well, you know, let's just bite my, bite my tongue on that and say, I have to do it. You know, it's worth doing because the cumulative weight of carrying that extra few grams for 10 weeks is, you know, is going to be quite a a, a sort of a a relieved burden. So, yeah, I've been going through all my kit, and my kit is fairly lightweight anyway. I've not been obsessive, but I have been, ever since the age of 16, continually renewing my kit. And I've certainly got into the lightweight thing over the past few years, um, just on the grounds, what's the point of carrying dead weight up and down a hill? I won't take anything I'm not going to use. So that's kit that's not going anywhere. Stuff I am going to use, there's nearly always a way of getting a a more light version than the one you've already got, or shaving off a few more grams from the lightweight kit you've already uh, gone and bought. Um, So one way or the other, I've been chopping and paring things right back and replacing things, and I think I'll get it as light as humanly possible, and then of course it all goes pear-shaped, if you like, when you pick your camera up and find it weighs nearly a kilo. Um, But you can't get out of that. It's not just the camera, it's the batteries, the cards, and the backup hard drive for all the digital information. Um, You suddenly find that's another kilo. So one way or another, your your pack, which you've managed to get down below 10 kilos, is suddenly creeping up towards 12, and there's nothing you can do about it. If I wasn't writing, if I wasn't photographing things, I would lose two or three kilos straight away off my pack. But everything else has been paired back to the absolute minimum. 
Now, I should ask about this little machine that you're carrying with you, that you're doing a lot of the writing on, because you're using, I guess, what we describe as an old classic. No? That's right. It's a totally obsolete Scion 3MX. Um, the Scion Series 3 is the it's only... the first clamshell, wasn't it? Yeah, the first clamshell little palm top which had a keyboard you could actually type on with two hands and nearly all your fingers. Um, because if you can touch type, if you can rattle off the words fast, that's a great bonus when you're writing for a living. If you're a one-fingered typist, then you're going to lose a lot of time actually writing. Um, and most of these wonderful, great tiny little high-powered palm tops you can get now are basically for one-fingered typists. In other words, they don't suit me at all. I like to use all my fingers. I can do 60 words a minute on a PC. I can do 25 words a minute on a Scion palm top, which means I can write as I walk and it's not using up much time. But the thing is, you know, ultimately that little scion is not going to be able to communicate with the sorts of computers and systems that are coming on stream now. There are already problems in that field, so I'm having to make sure that my creaky old computer sat on my desktop at home, if I upgrade that, it must work with my obsolete scion, otherwise there's no point me throwing money at an upgrade. Well, I suppose, if, um, I suppose if there's anybody out there that's come across a really new gadget with a very, very good operable keyboard that you can knock around at 25 uh, words a minute, then um, I guess Paddy wants to know about I it. I certainly do. Now, um, just thinking about the future, and um, I always like asking this to guidebook writers, I mean, are there places of the world that you're desperate to go to that you haven't reached yet, or what does the future hold in store? I'm afraid there are too many places that I want to visit to squash into the remainder of my lifetime. You could give me five, ten, a hundred lifetimes and I still wouldn't get round everything. So what happens is there are all sorts of places which are on like a dream list and then occasionally one of them bubbles away to the top of the actual practical list and will be couched in such terms that I either go and do it or go and do it with a, a, a commercial view of, you know, actually writing about it, making a, a few bob on it. Um, but one way or the other, you know, things do come to the surface. But I tend not to sort of list them in any sort of regimented way. I don't have a, a list of ten places I want to go and I pick my way through them one after the other. I'm quite happy to look maybe three or four months ahead at what's immediately practical and then have one or two dream things ahead of that and just see what bubbles up next. But that's basically the, the way I'd approach it. You know, I'm not going to suddenly draw all the money out of the bank and go off to some exotic location for a couple of weeks. I'm going to be more practical. I'm going to see what my publishers want. I'm going to put things to my publishers and see if they'll go for them. And one way or the other, you know, kicking ideas backwards and forwards will come up with things that I actually do go out and do. But whatever I do, I tend to, you know, enjoy them 100%. OK, well, it's clearly a lifestyle rather than a, not so much a life choice, really, but it's, it's a completely uh, complete way of life. Paddy's been fascinating talking to you, and um, good luck in the GR5 this year, and uh, let's hope we can talk to you when you come back. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'll need all the luck I can get on that one, and I'm thoroughly, you know, well and truly looking forward to it, and I'm sure it'll be a great relief when it's finished as well. Paddy, thanks a lot. This independent programme has been brought to you by The Outdoor Station, the exciting new way to see and hear free information about the outdoors world. If you're a blogger or if you have a website, you can now incorporate any of these podcasts directly to your site, completely free. 
visit our website, theoutdoorstation.co.uk, for more information. 